Researchers at Carnegie Mellon University have concluded the federal procurement system isn't nearly as competitive as it should or could be. That's because many solicitations end up with only one bidder, or there's no competition in the first place. For more on what they looked at and what they found, Tom Temin spoke with Karam Kang. She's one of the project's co-authors and an economics professor at Carnegie Mellon. It looks like there's not much of a competition, but we find that you don't have to worry too much about it in the sense that we are looking at why there's a lot of competition. And the main key reasons are, number one, contracting agencies can design contracts to lower the price, even with a single bidder via negotiation. And second, sellers are relatively homogeneous, conditional on observed project attributes. So uh, what we found pretty interesting here is that administrative hurdles, so-called red tape, and corruption appear to play very limited roles. Well, that is good news. And let's back up to the beginning here then. And uh, what were you trying to look at? And tell us briefly the methodology by which you came to these conclusions. So we looked at uh, what determines the level of competition among vendors for their procurement contracts, focusing on IT and telecommunications contracts. So I have to say that, you know, our findings might be limited to these contracts. And the methodology here is that we consider a model of negotiation and uh, choosing how much a competition to have from the contracting officer's point of view. And then we solve for equilibrium in such setting and then match that to the data and then estimate the parameters of the model. I, I guess that's a problem. The, uh, it's not that easy to explain <laughs> the uh, methodology. Yes, you've got 86 pages of research here, and a lot of them are covered with very complex equations. But basically, your data source (laughs) was the federal procurement data system? Yes. Okay. And do you have a rough idea of the value annually of the procurements that you did look at, that is the uh, IT and telecom? Yeah. So we looked at around 7,000 contracts costing the government about $2.5 billion. That's the period of 2004 to 2015. Okay. And so the same procurement laws were pretty stable throughout that period. So they were following, you know, the kind of the same methodologies. And discuss the level of how many of these solicitations resulted in competition and those that were not competitive or sole source. What were the reasonings behind there? Paint us a picture here. Yes. So lack of competition can be explained by many reasons. Number one, it could be that government has regulations, so it should be only one vendor should do it, for example, because of international agreements, things like that. It could also be that uh, contracting officers decide that patent or copyright issues, you should only do one person. At the point, though, you may wonder why contracting officer decides they have to use patented product as opposed to non-patented product. And also, a third reason for lack of competition or a lot of competition is a set-aside for small businesses. We do find that for small businesses, one, they have a lot of competition because like large companies cannot participate, that seems to increase competition among small businesses. Aside from these three reasons, default is full and open competition. But interesting thing is that even for the full and open competition, we see that median number of bids is two. Yeah, so even when they say come one, come all, the vendors don't. Mm -hmm. That's right. We're speaking with Karam Kang. She's an economics professor at Carnegie Mellon University and co-author of a report called Winning by Default, Why There Is So Little Competition in Government Procurement. So in those cases where it is sole source, 
which is sounds like a lot of them, and where there's limited competition, only two bidders, then you mentioned earlier that the government has ways of getting great prices anyway. And what did you discover there? Yes, so the government officials has a choice about what kind of contract they want to use. So they could go with a firm fixed to contracts that are like depend on cost. So the higher cost, you pay more as opposed to like a firm fixed contract price. And then within this contract format, there are a lot of ways to change the contract price as a function of performance and other measures that you can see throughout the history of a contract. And what we are discovering is that this discretion in writing contracts and negotiating even with a single vendor can decrease the contract price. It's like a you're kind of figuring out how much would it cost to actually produce a service. You don't know that information front end as a buyer. However, by with a negotiation process, by contracting, you can kind of figure that out and push the price down. So short answer is the negotiation can reduce the price with the bargaining power that you have. And is this true for contracts for products as well as contracts for services? Correct. So we did look at both products and services. All right. What should the government then, do you think, take away from the study? What's the significance here? So there was an important procurement reform during the Clinton administration, which allowed more discretion by the government officials in charge of procurement. So my reading of the Federal Acquisition Regulations, for example, the contracting agencies can choose whether to use an auction format or negotiate with a bidder, how much effort to exert in order to search for more vendors, and the type of contract which we study, which determines how payment will depend on the performance. So why is it important? Our study shows that this discretion I was talking about, given to the officials, is working pretty well, at least in my sample of contracts, in the sense that imposing regulations to increase competition is not necessarily going to reduce government costs especially considering their administrative costs. Karam Kong is an economics professor at Carnegie Mellon University and co-author of Winning by Default, Why There is So Little Competition in Government Procurement. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive and subscribe to the Federal Drive on Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Hello and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I am your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Vice Admiral Cutler Dawson. Cutler has had an incredible career serving our country for 35 years in the Navy, where he attained the rank of Vice Admiral. During his service, he had numerous assignments afloat and ashore, including Commander, Second Fleet, Striking Fleet Atlantic, and in Washington at the Pentagon and on Capitol Hill, where he was the Navy's Chief of Legislative Affairs. Immediately following his retirement from active duty in 2004, he became the president and CEO of Navy Federal Credit Union, the world's largest credit union, where he served for 14 years. Under his leadership, Navy Federal grew from 2 million to 8 million members. Phenomenal. Cutler, welcome and thanks for joining me. Thank you, Shane. You've had a fascinating career across both military and the private sector. Can you tell us a little bit more about your background and your professional journey? Well, I started out at the Naval Academy where I graduated in 1970. And then, as you mentioned, spent 35 years in the Navy um, with uh, six actual actual uh, afloat commands. Uh, the first one was when I was 27 years old. 
Uh, I didn't know enough to be scared of anything. And it was uh, probably one of the highlights of my career. Um, and then after I retired, after 35 years, I went to uh, work at Navy Federal Credit Union as the CEO, where I spent my next 14 years. Um, I'm, I'm currently retired and enjoying life. And um, it's been a great run for me. How would you describe your leadership style? And how's that developed over the years? My style has been quite con consistent. Um, I believe, and I've learned this in the Navy, that you have to go to the deck plates uh, to see what is going on. And you have to learn what your people do and how they do it so you can help them to be better at it and more efficient and more productive. Um, it's um, something that you need to do all the time. Um, I remember I used to tell folks that um, you don't want to retreat to your cabin. And what I mean by that is um, the longer you're in a position, the less you think you have to get out and about. But that should be the opposite. You should get out and about more because people change, situations change, and you've got to figure out a way to get to them and find out what they're doing and where, what you can do to help them. Uh, I. We'll talk a little bit more about your book, but I read it um, from C to the C-suite. Fantastic read. You talk about the deck plates in that um, as well. I would encourage everyone to get a copy of this and read some more detail about going to the deck plates. Cutler, who was the most impactful leader in your life and what quality did you admire about them? I had numerous while I was in the Navy, but uh, the quality that, that I enjoyed the most was the leaders that got to know me as an individual and that they cared about me. And I could tell that they cared about me. And they were not only my leaders, but they were my mentors. And um, I remember um, one particular one, Bill Schiffer, when I had my first assignment at the Pentagon, um, I would go in to see him with my problem of the day. And I knew that he had numerous problems of his own, but he would stop and he would focus on me and he would make me feel like I was the most important person in his world. Um, and I, I tried to do that um, throughout my career. But really, it's about caring for your people. Cutler, in reading your book, there was a quote you used that you used to inspire those people that work for you. And it really got my attention. And it was, it was you are the captain of your own ship. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what that means and how it was useful to you and the leaders you were developing. Um, absolutely. Um, what I mean by captain of your own ship, when you are the captain of a ship, sometimes you're in the middle of the ocean and you don't have anybody to turn to to make decisions. You don't have anybody to turn to ask, what should I do now? You have to be the captain of that ship. And I, I translated that um, into, let's say, Navy Federal's organization, where I would tell branch managers that I said, you are the captain of the ships of Navy Federal. You're the ones that are facing the, the members or customers, as others call them, every day. And you have to make decisions without a lot of guidance, in some cases, and without a lot of time. So be the captain of your own ship. Step up, uh, make decisions, uh, do what you think is right, and you never can go wrong. I think that is so important. And you have to give your people a little bit of latitude to take some risk as well, because there is risk for them in doing that and risk to your organization. That's right. And, and I mentioned that I, I took command of my first ship 
uh, with five years in the Navy and I was 27 years old. Well, my boss had 32 years in the Navy and um, his, his guidance to me when I first met him was, Cutler, you do the right thing and I'll back you up all the way. What a wonderful way to, to spend an assignment with, uh, with backup and, and guidance like that. What, what great, great advice. Uh, it's clear leadership is a topic you're passionate about. You wrote the book we mentioned before, um, From C to C-Suite. Can you tell us a little bit about that project? Yes. When I was at Navy Federal, I would tell sea stories uh, as parables to get my point across. And um, folks would tell me, Cutler, we like your stories. It gives us a picture of what you're trying to tell us. Now, what else are they going to say? They work for me, but uh, uh, I took it as a compliment, and it was. And my wife encouraged me to write a book, and I needed a co-author to help me. And I found a lady named Taylor Keelan, who was the perfect, perfect co-author. She turned in my stories into wonderful chapters um, that I'm very proud of. Where can listeners find a copy? Well, you can get it on Amazon, uh, and you can also uh, get it on the Naval Institute website. Uh, And I might add that um, any proceeds from the book, Navy Federal uses uh, to give to charity. Fantastic. Cutler, thank you very much. Really enjoyed your time and your lessons in in leadership and sharing with us your life story. And and, uh, I've learned a lot both from talking to you today and reading your book. And thank you very much for your time. It's my pleasure. And I I would like to add one thing if I could, Shane. Um, During my assignments in Washington, D.C., I gained the utmost respect for the civilians that work here every day. They're hardworking, they're dedicated, and they, they have my eternal gratitude. Uh, I got to come and go from the Pentagon. They stayed every day and worked in Washington when I got to go out and um, enjoy being at sea. Perfect. Thank you. Yeah, we, WEPA serves civilian federal employees, but your comment is well taken because the interaction between the two is is continuous, it's nonstop, and it's critical. So uh, the career civil servants, as well as career military, uh, our country would not be where it is today without them. I totally agree. And and I can tell you from the U.S. Navy standpoint, uh, we couldn't operate like we do without them being the backbone of what we do. Thank you very much for your time today, Cutler. And to everyone listening to Lessons in Leadership podcast, we'll see you next time. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.